Hope you picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes. Uh, my approach this morning will be that first page. We'll basically just work off the uh, notes, and then that second page will be up on PowerPoint. Uh, but uh, if you were not here last Sunday, let me just mention, we began a brand new sermon series on the last three historical books of the Old Testament, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Uh, the title for our study, as you see, is The Good Hand of God, uh, Restoring and Preserving His People. I decided on that title because all three books, as we mentioned uh, last Sunday, deal with the same historical period. Uh, they deal with God uh, either restoring or preserving Israel after the nation was literally left in ruins, uh, just a heap of uh, rubbles. Uh, following the invasion of the Babylonians, with most of the population uh, either being killed by the Babylonians or led away as captives into Babylon, which was a distance of close to a thousand miles away from the city of Jerusalem. I included in the title that phrase, the good hand of God, because we will discover that is a recurring phrase in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and uh, they use that, that phrase is used to indicate that it was the good and powerful hand of God alone that literally raised Israel out of death uh, to rebirth the nation. Uh, last Sunday, in introducing uh, the study, I gave you a one-word theme for each of the three books, along with a scripture verse that I said sort of captures the uh, spirit of that particular book. So let me give you a very quick pop quiz uh, to see if you remember those one-word themes for each book. Remember the one-word theme for the book of Ezra? Okay, I heard somebody say it, restoration, uh, because the book of Ezra is all about uh, two uh, groups of Jews, two remnants that uh, uh, God brought back to their homeland out of the Babylonian captivity uh, to rebirth, uh, to restore uh, the nation. Uh, the uh, verse that I used uh, was, though he calls grief, uh, he will show compassion. And uh, took that verse out of Lamentations. Matter of fact, uh, take your Bibles and uh, turn to Lamentations 3. And uh, I think this is important for you to see because uh, uh, the background of this book, this book was written by Jeremiah. And of course, you remember it was Jeremiah who had a long uh, 50 year ministry to the nation of Israel. Um, and uh, he tried to uh, warn them of their sin, reprove them. Uh, turn them back to God. Uh, the people never responded to Jeremiah's uh, warnings. Uh, he foretold of the Babylonian invasion. He foretold that there would be uh, captivity if they did not turn their hearts uh, back to God. And of course, uh, the people 
scorned uh, Jeremiah. He was severely uh, persecuted. Matter of fact, uh, uh, there's no other individual in the entire Bible that was more persecuted than Jeremiah. And like I said, over a ministry that lasted more than uh, five decades. And, uh, and he wrote Lamentations as a eulogy over Jerusalem. When he wrote Lamentations, the Babylonians had invaded. And they had left the, 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 the nation in rubbles, the city of Jerusalem in rubbles. They had destroyed Solomon's temple. And you literally have Jeremiah, and you need to picture the scene. He's walking through the rubble of Jerusalem, smelling that awful burning of the buildings, and not only burning of the buildings, but the burning of human flesh, as bodies are just thrown all over the streets. And this is the most melancholy, the most tragic, saddest book in the entire Bible. As he, it, this man is just grieving. He's just mourning over the death of this nation, over the death of Jerusalem. Uh, but right in the middle of this book is this glorious statement of hope in God that the judgment would not be the last word. The last word would be the triumph of God's love. And even prior to the Babylonian invasion, uh, as we're going to see, Jeremiah promised, yes, God is going to judge you uh, through the Babylonians, but he will restore you. And he gave that wonderful promise. But let's pick up, just to give you a little uh, taste of the, uh, uh, the mood of the book and the, uh, the struggle of Jeremiah, I'll pick up at chapter 3, verse 17. He says, and my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. There's a man that's just in the pits of despair and depression as he's witnessing this horrific scene of the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 19, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. And then notice this turn in verse 21. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. What does he recall that brings him hope? Look at the next verse. Verse 22. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. And then look at verses 31 and 32. For the Lord will not reject forever. For verse 32, here's the verse. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion. And that is the tone of the book of Ezra. Uh, this is when God shows compassion to his people after he had inflicted them with great grief as a result of the Babylonian invasion and their 70-year captivity uh, in Babylon. Uh, what was the one word for Nehemiah? Reconstruction. 
Uh, the book is all about the rebuilding of the uh, walls of the, uh, of the city. Uh, the verse that I used, I drew it from the New Testament, from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and it's the spirit of the book. Be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing your labor is not in vain. And remember in a short 52 days, it was a miraculous feat uh, by God's hand, they were able to complete the rebuilding of the walls that were laying in, in rubble. And then what's the one word for Esther? Preservation. Uh, he who keeps Israel would neither slumber or sleep. Uh, keep in mind, although there were Jews that returned to Jerusalem, to their homeland, to rebirth the nation, to reestablish it, there are many, many more Jews that remained in Babylon. And that is what the book of Esther is all about. There was a plot to commit genocide against the Jewish race by a man, we're going to see, an evil band by the name of Haman. And we'll see how God in his providence uh, anticipated the crisis, overruled the crisis, and uh, preserved his people. Now this morning, we're going to focus on the first two chapters of Ezra. Uh, so please uh, look at the beginning of your sermon notes at the overview of Ezra chapters 1 and 2. The book of Ezra picks up where the book of 2 Chronicles ends with the decree of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the Jews could return to their homeland after 70 years of captivity in Babylon, which they suffered as God's judgment for persistent unbelief and sin. Just to give us an overview of this historical period, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Chronicles, the very last chapter. And you're going to need your Bibles in this sermon. Uh, we're going to look at uh, a number of passages, some that are in your notes, others that are not. Uh, but go to the very last chapter of 2 Chronicles. It gives us a very good overview of what happened to the nation of Israel and then uh, takes us, uh, introduces what's going to happen uh, in the book of Ezra. Uh, let's pick up at reading 2 Chronicles 36. Let's pick up reading at verse 14. It says, Furthermore, the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them, again and again by his messengers. And those messengers were men like Jeremiah, men like Ezekiel, men like Isaiah. So he, he sent to them again and again by his men because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they noticed the response of the children of Israel, but they continually mocked the messengers of God despised his words uh, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. I think of, uh, let me just pause right there, Proverbs 29.1. It says, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will be suddenly cut off beyond remedy. Uh, then verse 17, so what did God do when they got to this point of just persistent unbelief and sin, mocking God, mocking his truth, mocking his character, therefore, 
He brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. And let me just pause right there. Just write down uh, Jeremiah 15, 1 through 4. Um, it, it's, a, it's a startling passage that indicates how far the nation had gone, which brought about this judgment. Uh, we won't turn there, but in that passage, God makes a statement. Even if Moses and Samuel were to be present right now, even if Moses and Samuel were to intercede for this people, it would do no good. And then he makes his statement of judgment. He says, there are some of you that's destined for the sword. You're going to lose your life. Some of you are destined to captivity. Talking about the Babylonian captivity. And then he makes this statement that he was going to make the nation an object of horror. And he says, because, and he, gives, he says, because of the sin of Manasseh and what he did. And do you know what the unique sin of Manasseh was? the shedding of innocent blood. They first became guilty of idolatry as they turned from God to chase other pursuits. As they turned from God, they lost any basis for morality first, and you saw the nation plunge into the depths of immorality. They literally turned Solomon's temple, the house of worship, into a house of idolatry, a house of prostitution. And then right behind that came inhumanity because they also lost, once they moved God from the picture, they lost the basis for the dignity and the worth and value of a human life. And you remember they began to literally sacrifice their infant children to the false god of Molech to ensure them peace and economic prosperity as a nation. And if we could go to other scriptures, it tells us that he literally, Manasseh literally filled Jerusalem from one end to another with innocent blood. He even sacrificed his own, some of his own children to the false god of Molech. Uh, Psalm 106 talks about how they literally polluted the entire nation with the blood of those innocent children that cried out uh, for justice. And, and, and one of the most important things for you to understand as, as children of God that when you study the scriptures at the way God deals with a nation, the way God deals with a culture, there is a line that God has drawn in the sand. And he says, once a nation crosses that line, judgment is inevitable. It is inescapable. And that line is the shedding of innocent blood. And America is guilty of the shedding of innocent blood. Through the slaughter of the innocent, as a result of the destruction of children, as a result of abortion. And so we need to see we're standing in the same place that Israel stood many, many years ago. And the question is, will we mock God's servants? Will we mock and scorn God's truth and continue to go our own way? Or as a nation, will we repent and submit to God, uh, acknowledge our sin, and return, return to Him? And then verse 18, notice what happened as a result of the Babylonian invasion. Not only 
death of many individuals, and all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, he's referring to the temple, and the treasures of the king uh, and of his officials, uh, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its fortified buildings with fire, and destroyed all its valuable articles. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons and to the rule of the king of Persia. Persia conquered Babylon, and at once God brought judgment against Babylon and the Persians were the world empire. He said, at that point, I will restore you. Notice verse 21, to fulfill. This is why he said, I will do, I'm going to restore you. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbath. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. What that is talking about is, you remember one of the, the, the laws of God was every seven years they had to lay, let the land lay fallow uh, to restore itself. And for 490 years, they disobeyed that law because of their greed, uh, their desire for money. And, uh, and so they, they never would let the land rest. And so God, that's how God determined how long the captivity would be uh, because they had failed to observe 70 of those seven Sabbath rests uh, for the land. And then notice verse 22. This takes us into the book of Ezra. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now just turn one page over to Ezra chapter one, all I want you to see is verse 1 that Ezra picks up right where Second Chronicles ended. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, giving the Jews an opportunity to return to their homeland. We'll talk, uh, say more about that. Uh, in, in just a little bit. Now, going back to your sermon notes, look at that next uh, uh, paragraph. The book of Ezra chronicles the return, and we saw this last week, of what? Two Jewish remnants which were divided by a space of 80 years. Uh, chapters 1 through 6 deals with the first return led by Jerubbabel, who we said was a uh, civil servant, actually a descendant of King David, and ends with the rebuilding of the temple. Uh, their first goal in returning to their homeland was to restore worship of the true God, restore worship of Jehovah. And then chapters 7 through 10 record the events of the second return, which were led by Ezra himself. And that return focuses on the reformation of the people through instruction in God's law. And then, continuing in your notes, Ezra 1 and 2, our focus for today is comprised of three sections. We could divide it into three sections. The first section is Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, 
where God stirs up the spirit of King Cyrus, which results in his decree to allow the Jews to return to their homeland. Now, go back to Ezra 1. We've already read the first verse, but begin reading at verse 2 to see what the actual decree said. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle together, with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And then the second section would be Ezra chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. And you'll see there in your notes, what we basically have is a second exodus um, uh, that is put into motion as the Jews who choose not to return are ordered to provide gold and livestock and other items of worth for the rebuilding of Jerusalem, especially the temple, uh, to those who are returning. And in addition, King Cyrus... Uh, we will see in these verses, returns all the sacred articles of gold and silver totaling over 5,000 pieces, which were taken from the temple when it was initially destroyed by the Babylonians, and he gives them back to the Jews to be returned to the new temple that's to be rebuilt. So let's read these verses, 5 through 11 of Ezra chapter 1. Then the heads of the fathers, uh, households of Judah and Benjamin, they apparently took the lead in this return, and the priests and the Levites arose, even everyone whose spirit God has stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and all those about them encouraged them with the articles of silver, with gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables. Aside from all that, there was given a free will offering. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar, that's the Babylonian king, had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Jezbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of the second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400. And Jezbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. And then the third section of Ezra verse one is chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And just as Israel was numbered before their initial march to the promised land in the book of Numbers, the people now are numbered again and prepared for their new march to the promised land. And there is evidence which implies all 12 tribes of Israel were represented. Uh, the small returning uh, remnant uh, numbered close to 50,000 people, very small number compared to uh, the number of Jews that would have been in Babylon at that time. Uh, but their return was proof of God's commitment to redeem the earth from sin and judgment through the coming Messiah and to establish an eternal kingdom of righteousness. So just look at verse 1 to get the feel of it of chapter 2. Now, these are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon. 
and uh, returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. And then you just have the, this great sort of uh, 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 hall of fame of, uh, of these heroes that returned to the land uh, to uh, restore it and to, uh, and to repopulate it. So that's an overview of the first two chapters. Now, what I want to spend the rest of our time on is lessons to be learned, and that's the second page of your sermon notes. And I want us to see three, which are very, very powerful lessons, lessons that we can apply to our lives right now uh, that we see uh, being uh, very clearly here in the book of Ezra. And here's the first lesson. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He's in control. Therefore, when life seems against me, the Lord is for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? Amen? Amen? Now think about this in the context of the book of Ezra. This is being applied not just to adversity that believers would experience, but adversity brought on by believers' sin. I mean, they're in the situation they're in because they mocked God. They scorned God. They rebelled against God. And as a result, they experienced judgment at the hands of the Babylonians and they were carried away into captivity. But the thing that we need to see is that once caught by God's love, once God's covenant people, there's no escape from their, that love. There's nothing that can uproot you that can sever you from that love. God's love, His disposition of love to you can never be altered. It doesn't mean you can't grieve God. It doesn't mean you can't anger God. Just like children can grieve and anger their parents when they rebel. But God says, my love will remain constant to you and he will continue uh, to pursue. And as a sovereign God, he works to restore, uh, to redeem, uh, to, uh, to correct. And notice how he did this. Look there in your notes at Ezra 1, 1 again, the Lord, and circled this next phrase, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of... Who did it? God did it. God stirred up the king of Cyrus. Remember, again, remember, uh, I mentioned a moment ago, uh, Babylonians invaded, conquered uh, Israel, led them away into captivity. They were in captivity for 70 years. Toward the end of that captivity, the Persians invaded Babylon and overthrew Babylon. They became the world empire. Uh, Cyrus the Great is the uh, king of Persia, and he's the one that gives this proclamation that they can go back, but it gives credit to that to God, who put, placed this in his, uh, in, to his heart. Uh, take your Bibles and turn to uh, Isaiah 43, and let me show you an amazing prophecy concerning this. The prophecy that we're going to look at was given 150 years before Cyrus was born. 150 years before he was born, before the Persians were, were even thought of to be any type of world uh, empire. And he actually mentions Cyrus by name. And uh, what he would do. Uh, let's begin reading. Uh, I think it's important for you to see uh, chapter 43, 
verse 28. All of these chapters right here, this is Isaiah the prophet who, who lived earlier than Jeremiah and Ezekiel, but he also predicted the invasion of the Babylonians, predicted that the people would be taken into exile. And like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he also uh, promised that God would show compassion and eventually restore his people. And uh, look at the last verse of uh, chapter 43, just to show you how bad things got. God says, so I will pollute, this is, he's talking about as a result of the people's sin that we read about in 2 Chronicles 36. So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary. That word pollute in the Hebrew could mean I'll pierce them through. And he's talking about the priests. Those are the princes of the sanctuary. So he's saying, I'm going I'm to pierce through the priest and I will consign Jacob uh, to the band and Israel to revilement. Now that word ban is a fascinating word in the Hebrew text. That literally is referring to the total destruction of a nation that has sunk so far into sin that there is no longer any justification for their existence. This is the word that was used when God pronounced judgments against the Canaanites when Israel initially entered the promised land and he told them to wipe out those evil, wicked nations so that he could plant the nation of Israel there to be a source of health for the nations, to be a witness uh, to the nations for God. And now what has happened, Israel has become as bad as those nations that they uprooted and removed. And he's saying, you've fallen so far into sin, I can't even justify your existence any longer. And he brought them to this point of revilement. But again, God's love will never ultimately fail his people. As I've said many, many times before, the final word will never be the judgment of God's people, but the triumph of God's love. And so turn to uh, chapter 44. Let's begin reading at verse 21, which is this incredible promise of God's redemption of his people. He says, remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Who has done it? The sovereign God has done it. He's talking about their restoration, the, the redemption of the nation, the rebirth of the nation. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains, O forests, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and the one who formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone, causing the omens of boasters to fail, making fools out of diviners, causing wise men to draw back and turning their knowledge into foolishness, confirming the word of his servant and performing the purpose of his messengers. It is I who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built and I will raise up her ruins again. It is I who says to the depth of the sea, be dried up, and I will make your rivers dry. It is I who says of Cyrus, names him, 150 years before the man was ever born. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, 
and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be lied. Go continue into uh, chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, again, names him. Guy hadn't even been born yet. Whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, especially the Babylonians, and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you, speaking to Cyrus, and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of the bronze and cut through their iron bars, apparently a reference to the overthrow of Babylon. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places and order, why? That you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. For the sake of Jacob. Why did he do it? For the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one. I have also called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor, though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me. Why? That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Now think about this. The monarchy of Israel, the descendants of David, failed God, fell into sin, turned the temple into a house of idolatry and prostitution, turned their backs on God. So God says, if my own people are not going to glorify me, I'll raise up a foreign king to accomplish my promises to my people. God is sovereign. God can work even through unbelievers, through authorities, political leaders, to accomplish his plans and his purposes for his people. And that is exactly what we see here. Josephus, the uh, famous Jewish historian back in uh, uh, Bible days, New Testament days, he said that what happened was Daniel... Remember, Daniel was led away into captivity into Babylon. And it was Daniel that served the Babylonian kings, but he also served what? The Persian kings. He served Cyrus. He went on and served a later king by the name of Darius that you're familiar with in the book of Daniel. And Josephus says that Daniel showed Cyrus this prophecy and that he was so moved by it that he gave his heart to fulfill it. Look at verse 5, another indication of God's sovereignty. Then the heads of fathers of households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites rose, even everyone whose what? Spirit. God had stirred up. The very same phrase you saw with King Cyrus, stirred up to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. So what we're seeing here is a marvelous example of that next verse in the new, from the New Testament, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for what? Good. To those who love God, for His people, to those who are called according to His purpose. And you know, you've heard me say from this pulpit before, most often we apply that verse to our individual lives, and it is right to do so, very appropriate to do so. But probably the uh, greater application is that God is saying in, in the context that in terms of world affairs and history, all things ultimately work for the good 
of his chosen people, whether it be Israel or the church. And, he, and no matter what happens, it's happening for their good, for their spiritual development, whether it's to correct them if they need correction, whether it's to purify them in times of persecution and difficulty, whatever the case might be. Look at the second lesson. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Therefore, I can trust God even in the dark. God keeps his promises. Therefore, I can trust God in uh, the dark. Ezra 1.1, look at it again. In order, God said, everything that takes place in Ezra, everything that takes place in Nehemiah, everything that takes place in Esther, rest right here on Ezra 1.1 in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Now, what did God promise through the prophet of Jeremiah? Look, and you see it there in your notes. Look at Jeremiah first, 25, verses 11 and 12. This whole land, referring to Judah, will be a desolation and a horror, and that because of their unbelief and sin, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will be when 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. And he did that through Cyrus and the Persians, declares the Lord, for their iniquity, and I will make it, make Babylon an everlasting desolation. But then look at Jeremiah 29. Not only after 70 years would he judge the Babylonians through the Persians, King Cyrus, but look at Jeremiah 29. Look at verses, first, verses 10 and 14. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you. He's referring to his people. And I will fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. Bring you back where? To Jerusalem, to the nation of Israel. I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. That was a promise that God gave them before the Babylonian invasion. You know, you know something that struck me, maybe it just means a lot to a minister, but I hope it would mean a lot to you. I remember doing a lot of study with Jeremiah. Remember how I said he had, he had a ministry of over, 50 dec- of over five decades, over 50 years? And he was the most persecuted man in the entire Bible. I mean, he was beaten times without number, put in prison, put in stocks. He was a laughingstock, scorned, mocked throughout his... He never had a convert. Never had a... I can't even begin to imagine that as a minister. To be God's spokesman and never see any response to the message. Never. Matter of fact, well, no, he did see a response, but it's the kind of response he didn't want. Where they, they, were, they, were, they were trying to take him out. And if it hadn't been for God's sovereign grace putting him in the bubble of his protection, they would have taken him out. But think about it. You know, I, I, and it just, just struck me doing this study. Because that, that's pretty depressing to think a man suffered that kind of ministry. But when they went into captivity, it was the words of Jeremiah that ministered to them. See, once they went into captivity, God's discipline began to take effect. It began to bring brokenness. 
And then they went back to Jeremiah's words. They began to cling to these promises, knowing that God would honor his, would honor his word. And then look at the third truth. And so important for us to see even today. God's discipline is a loving father's hand of correction, not a harsh judge's verdict of condemnation. Therefore, submit to rather than resist God's discipline. God's discipline is a loving father's hand of correction, not a harsh judge's verdict of condemnation. Therefore, submit to rather than resist God's discipline. Look again at Jeremiah 29, verses 11 through 14. And we often, this next verse that I'm about to read, we often yank that out of its context. But it's in the context of a people that God has judged. The nation is laying in ruins. They are in captivity hundreds of miles away. And in that context, he says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity. To give you a future and a hope. He's telling this to an obstinate people that turn their backs on God. But he said, but even in your rebellion, I love you. My heart is stirred for you. And then notice he says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. What we need to see is the purpose of the Babylonian judgment was not to destroy his people, but what? To recapture their hearts. That was the law. God, God had to take that dramatic action because of how far his people had strayed from him. I mean, they were destroying themselves through the shedding of innocent blood. They were on a path of self-destruction. So God had to intervene with a catastrophic judgment just to prevent them from exterminating themselves in their sin and their rebellion. And it worked. Once they got into captivity, their hearts became broken. It became, they began to turn to God again, turn to the book of Jeremiah and some of the other prophets, finding God, and then he restored them. Uh, turn, take your Bibles, look at Jeremiah 18. In a nutshell, in Jeremiah 18, in this little parable that he gives Jeremiah, this is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah in a nutshell. Here it is. Chapter 18, verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel as it pleased the potter to make it. That is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's, it's God making Israel and then becoming spoiled in his hands because of them, their sin. And then God remaking, rebuilding, restoring the nation to himself. Verse 5, then the word of the Lord came to me saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hands, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. 
And then one last passage and we're done. Isaiah 49. You will greatly appreciate this. Isaiah 49. What a word of encouragement right here. Now again, you got to keep in mind, this is a people that have just been judged severely by God. What do you, th- what do you think they were struggling with? Guilt, remorse. They were thinking, we've gone beyond the point of no return. We've been forsaken by God. He no longer loves us. He no longer cares. And we're in this position because of what we did. And we acknowledge that. We recognize that. And so look at, look at Isaiah. This is in, in, in these chapters, it's talking about this same period of time, but Isaiah's looking forward. He says, verse 14, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. And again, I don't think they're saying that in anger. I think they're saying it in deep remorse and regret, realizing that they're in the position that they're in because of their own stinking sin and rebellion and disobedience. And notice God's response. Can a woman forget her nursing child? And have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget. But I will not forget. Behold. Don't miss this. I have you. I have inscribed you. On the palms of my hand. You know that word inscribed in the Hebrew. It means to cut into. God's saying if if you're his child, if you've placed your faith in him, if you're a covenant child of God, your name has literally been cut into the palm of his hand. And his hand is a good hand. And his hand is a powerful hand. And what we've seen today with the Jews in the book of Ezra is true of us today. That good hand of God where your name is inscribed has the power to restore you. Has the power to preserve you. So I don't know where everyone is here this morning. I can't not imagine there's got to be individuals sitting there and you are right now, you've become overcome with guilt by your own disobedience and compromise. And you've been struggling with that question. I think I've, I've just, I've, I've just, I've gone, I've done it one too many times now. I've crossed that point. God can't love me after what I've done. God can't love me after I've persisted this long in this sin or in this area of unbelief, whatever it might be. No, he loves you. And yes, you may be going through difficult times. He may be working hard on you to correct you, to get your attention, to break you, but only because he loves you, only because your name is inscribed in the palm of his hand. And he wants to embrace you and love you and restore you. And don't 
ever forget that palm that has your name inscribed on it, those hands were also what? Nailed on a cross. Pierced for your iniquities. And so the hands, this is an amazing thought, the hands that shape your life, the potter's hands, the hands that determine the circumstances you face, the trials you face, the tests you face, they're the nail-scarred hands of Jesus where your name is inscribed in the palm. You don't have to doubt his love. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, then how is God going to get me out of this mess? They had no clue. But a sovereign God who loved his people, he stepped in. He even used an unbelieving foreign king's heart to get his people back to the promised land. So I don't know how God will do it in your life. And God typically doesn't give explanations. He just says, trust me. Trust my love. Though he causes grief, he will have what? Compassion. Father, open our eyes to see your eternal and infinite love towards your children, towards your covenant people. Lord, one of those prayers I challenged our people to pray for back at the first of the year, that prayer in Ephesians 3, part of that prayer is that we would come to realize how we have literally become rooted and grounded in your love. A love that nothing can uproot us from. And part of that prayer is that you would open our eyes to see, and not only to see, but to know experientially the length, depth, breadth, and height of that love. So we thank you that once a person, once a people, once a church is captured by you, there's no escape from your love. Thank you, you will be forever faithful And yes, faithful when needed to correct us, to discipline us, and that will be painful, it will be unpleasant, but thank you that the ultimate purpose is not to destroy us, but to draw us back to your heart, to draw us back into your arms, where we will know your love, where we will know your plans and purposes, where you stated so clearly, this is my plans for you, your welfare what is best for you. And so we acknowledge here this morning, the one who loves us most, he, you know what is best for us. So we can rest in you. So give us the grace as we've been challenged today not to resist you in adversity, not to resist you in discipline, but to submit to you. Submit to you by trusting your promises that you will be forever faithful to us. And as we trust those promises, placing our confidence in a sovereign God, we don't know how you're going to do it, but by golly, we know with certainty you will restore. You will
will preserve your people. You will accomplish your plans and purposes. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.